Good morning. Can I try that again? Good morning. <laughs> that feels better. So last week I mentioned the air was, it was noticeably uh, cold in here. It might be cold again. We kind of went back and forth. Do we want it to shut off and run the risk on a day when it's like almost 90 already of it getting steaming hot in here, or would we rather have it a little bit on the cold side? I think the cold keeps you awake. The heat probably puts you to sleep, so I need all the help I can get. So we're gonna, it's going to be maybe a little bit on the cold side this morning, so, so bear with us. Is it immoral to be a billionaire? That's a question people are asking in public discussion. People like A.Q. Smith believe so in an article for Current Affairs called, this is the title of the article, it's basically just immoral to be rich. Smith wrote, if you possess billions of dollars in a world where many people struggle because they do not have much money, you are an immoral person. And Smith, in that article, makes some points that do seem to line up with some of the things that Scripture teaches about money, about wealth, about responsibility to be generous. But Smith reaches a conclusion far beyond anything that Scripture says. This is the very last uh, statement in the article. Quote, it is immoral to be rich. That much is clear. End quote. At a Martin Luther King Jr. Day event last year, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman from New York's 14th District, in an interview, agreed that a system that allows billionaires to exist is immoral. And in a Democratic presidential debate not that long ago, candidate Bernie Sanders said, we have a grotesque and immoral distribution of wealth and income Mike Bloomberg, speaking of one of the other candidates at the time, owns more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. That's wrong. That's immoral. So this is not just on the fringe, a few people making this claim. It's more and more center of discussion. Is it immoral to be rich? How should Christians think about wealth, about money and riches? What should you do with the wealth that you have, whether you find that you have a lot or a little. God's word speaks to this issue in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I want to invite you to follow along with me, and if you're able, to stand out of regard for God's word, because we do read this book like no other book. We receive these words, they lay claims on us. They are authoritative and true, inspired by the Spirit of God. So follow along with me. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Father, your word 
as Logan prayed, it is a light to our feet. It is light and illumination. It is revelation from you, the infinite, all-wise, all-knowing, all-seeing God, creator and sustainer of everything. You alone possess immortality. You alone can give life. Thank you that you give us words to know you, to know how to live in this world that you made. Instruct us and teach us and correct us and lead us into that which is truly life so that our souls may live and make us good and wise and faithful stewards of all that you entrust to us so that in us, in our lives, in our households, in our church, the gospel of Jesus Christ may be known and proclaimed in this world that you love, this world that you gave your son to save. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So where we left off last week ends with this glorious doxology in verses 15 and 16. And that seems like a pretty good place for the letter to come to a conclusion. But after that doxology, Paul has a few more things to say to Timothy about the church in Ephesus. In particular, he has thoughts for a specific group of people. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age. So this is not unusual throughout this letter. Paul has addressed, he singled out various groups of people. He had instructions for men in the church, for women in the church, for elders, for deacons, for widows, for those who have family members who are widows, for slaves. And here he turns his attention to those who are materially wealthy. In fact, in this text, these few short verses, the word rich appears four times, and every time it shows up, it's a different part of speech. So Paul uses the word as a noun, riches, as an adjective, those who are rich, as an adverb, richly, and as a verb, to be rich. So you could sum up the whole text something like this. Paul is talking to rich people about their riches, which God richly provided to them so that they could be rich in good works. He's talking to rich people about their riches, which God richly gave them so they could be rich in good works. That's what this text is about. So who exactly are the rich? I I think it's possible if you're thinking, okay, well, he's talking to slaves here. I'm not a slave. That doesn't apply to me. He's talking to rich here. I could tune that out because I don't think of myself as rich. One recent survey found that 13% of millionaires do not think of themselves as rich. So chances are, you may be better off than you think. People have a tendency to look around and always to look up and think, well, I see way more people in the world with way more than I have. I don't have very much. So you might not think of yourself as being in this category, but this text is actually talking to a lot of people who don't think it's talking to them. Before you tune it out, let me try to convince you God has a word for you here. First, we all live in one of the wealthiest nations on earth, where according to one study, the poorest 20% of Americans consume more goods and services than the national averages for all people in the other most affluent nations on earth. That blows my mind. It doesn't necessarily mean that lowest 20% is wealthier, but they do consume more goods and services somehow. That means they enjoy a pretty good standard of living. We live in a wealthy nation. Also, lest you're tempted to think rich just means those who have a lot of cash, 
money is not the only measure of wealth. For example, I think we ought to think of technology as a form of wealth. Think about all the things you can do with a smartphone. You can do things with your smartphone that, you go back a few centuries, only the uber-rich who could hire dozens and dozens of hired servants could do those kinds of things. I mean, you can control your thermostat and your lights and your refrigerator with your phone. You can access all the information in the world at your fingertips. You possess a library in your pocket bigger than the wealthiest people in the world ever dreamed of centuries ago. We have access to stuff and to abilities just through technology that only those who are extremely rich could have ever thought of. So what the Spirit of God says here applies to anyone who possesses in abundance of anything. And there are lots of different things which people possess in abundance of. For example, some people possess in abundance of physical attributes. Scripture's honest about this. You may have an abundance of good looks or height, or strength. When we first meet King Saul in 1 Samuel 9, we're told there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he was. Some people have more good looks than others. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. I just knew early on in my life, I'm not going to be playing in the NBA. I don't have those qualities. I can complain about it all I want. I don't possess those things. Some people do in great abundance. Scripture's not embarrassed to say about Job's daughters, Job 42, 15, in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Some people possess an abundance of intelligence or education. 1 Kings 4, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. And then it goes on to name some of them, (laughs) which is a little embarrassing for those men. But Solomon had more wisdom than them. Or Some people possess an abundance of access to opportunity. Daniel 1, 4, Daniel and his friends were selected to stand in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace precisely because they were from Jewish nobility. They were youths without blemish. They were of good appearance. They were skillful in all wisdom. They were endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning. They had certain things other people didn't have, and so they had opportunities open up to them that other people didn't have. And in our world today, that's called... Privilege. You've probably heard that word used a lot, especially in recent days and weeks. That word privilege is used today to refer to advantages and benefits you have because you belong to a certain group or you have something about your identity. And so you hear people talk about white privilege, straight privilege, male privilege, religious privilege. But really, you could just throw all kinds of things into that, all kinds of benefits people enjoy that are unequal. If you have a mom and a dad who are married and in the same home, that's a benefit. That's a privilege that people, some people enjoy. But in the world and in a certain philosophy that is referred to as critical race theory and intersectionality, privilege you have, privilege you didn't ask for maybe, privilege you might not even know that you have, it, it makes you an oppressor. Because you benefit and others are disadvantaged. And that worldview says the only way for anybody to benefit is for other people to suffer. It's a slice of a pie worldview that says if you take a piece, then there's less left for everybody else. According to that worldview, the only way to benefit is always at the expense of others. But what does God say about this unequal distribution of looks, 
height, strength, intelligence, opportunity, riches. His word speaks about it. And if the church, the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth in the world, if if we're going to fulfill the mission God gave us, which is to disciple the nations, then we need to know God's word and be much more acquainted with his word than we are with the philosophies of the world or what our social media feeds say. And my concern is that many, many people in the church are being discipled by the world when it comes to thinking about these things. The world is giving us categories for thinking about this. We need God's word to inform how we think. We're called to disciple the world. And that means we have to teach the world how to understand, how to live with, what to do about wealth, riches, privilege if you want. So, if you have an abundance of anything that affords you certain opportunities that other people don't have, what what should you do about that? I want to share with you five instructions from 1 Timothy 6. First, do not be arrogant about any privilege, any wealth, any abundance that you have. That's verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say to Timothy, as for the rich, rebuke them for being rich. Shame them and guilt trip them for having abundance. That's not what he says. Because wealth is not immoral. Though there are many people who are making that argument in the world today, the Bible does not teach that at all. It's not a sin to be rich, whether that's possession of lots of money or possession of lots of good looks. That's not a sin. In fact, all you have, as we'll see, you only have because it comes from God. But abundance of anything. I'm I'm intentionally trying to make this broad application so everybody knows this is speaking to everyone in this room in some way. Abundance of anything, whatever it is that you have, it always comes with a unique set of temptations. There is a particular kind of temptation that comes when you have a lot of anything. There's so many places we could go in Scripture to to see this, but I'm going to quote pretty extensively from Deuteronomy chapter 8 here. Listen to this warning that God so graciously, how merciful, how gracious is is God that he would give his people this kind of warning before they go into a promised land where he's going to just lavish on them blessings. This is Deuteronomy 8 beginning in verse 11. Take care, be warned, watch out, lest you Forget the Lord your God. How in the world could anybody forget God? This is being addressed to Israelites who were brought out of slavery in Egypt, brought through the Red Sea. They saw the ten plagues that God sent on Pharaoh. How could you forget that? They ate manna in the desert for 40 years. They're about to see many more miracles when God brings them into the promised land. How could you forget God? Watch out lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today lest here's how it can happen when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart be lifted up And you forget the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, test you, to do you good in the end. None of those blessings which are going to be multiplied to you, none of those things are the problem. That's God. That's his hand upon you. That's his favorites because he loves you. That's not the problem. The problem is that your own sinful heart then is tempted to be lifted up and you forget God. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he It is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. You get how it happens? God in his goodness blesses his people and the particular temptation of God's blessings is that we enjoy those things and our hearts are lifted up in arrogance. We grow haughty. We think, I did this by my wisdom, by my strength. And that thought, to think that thought is to forget God because you're so impressed with yourself. As the New England Puritan Cotton Mather said, faithfulness begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. When God's people are faithful, God blesses that. But the blessing of God, that prosperity, tends to rise up and consume the faithfulness where the blessing came from. So having wealth is not sin. Having money is not sin. Having privilege is not sin, no matter what anybody tells you. But growing proud and arrogant and self-reliant, that's sin. Forgetting God is sin. Thinking highly of yourself and despising others is sin. So whenever you detect the slightest hint of that kind of haughtiness or pride in your own heart, kill it. Put it to death. Confess that. Turn to the Lord immediately with that lest you forget the Lord. Second, do not trust in any privilege. Don't put your trust, your confidence, your hope in it. Verse 17, Timothy is to charge the rich in this present age not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I've said this before. Trust is one of those inescapable things. It's not a matter of whether or not you live by faith. Every single person on earth is living by faith. The only question is, what are you trusting in? In particular, what are you trusting to satisfy you? What are you trusting to secure you? Where do you look to feel some sense of security about the future? To feel some joy and satisfaction in life? Where do you look? So do a survey of scripture. You just take that word trust and look at all the other things people trust in. According to Psalm 20 and Isaiah 31 and Jeremiah 46, there are people who trust in chariots and horses. That is, military strength and might. Their trust for security comes from chariots and horses. Deuteronomy 28, some people trust in high and fortified horses walls for their security. Psalm 118, some people trust in the government to satisfy and secure them. Proverbs 28, people trust in their own minds, their own intelligence. And of course, Scripture's full of warnings. There are people who trust in money, in riches, in treasure. And wherever that comes up, Scripture is clear. Watch out. Do not trust in 
riches. For one, as Paul says here, riches are uncertain. Jesus calls riches deceitful in Matthew 13, 22. And Proverbs, listen to this warning. When your eyes light on it, that is riches, treasure, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Some of you were here several summers ago when we did a series through Proverbs. I'll never forget when Greg preached on this passage because since then I always just think of an eagle just flying away. Some stimulus check from the government comes in. You're like, wow, this is nice, right? And then your AC goes out or you get in a car accident or whatever. And you're like, poof, just there it goes. <laughs> it's a nice while it sat in my bank account for a couple days. You, you ever have that experience? You, there it is, a little bit of breathing room and then it's gone. Just like that. Uncertain. But it's more serious than the uncertainty of it. When you put your trust in something so fleeting, so uncertain. I mean, it's like taking your own parachute out of newspapers taped together and jumping out of an airplane. There's just no hope there. It's not going to help you at all. So Psalm 52.7 warns, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So, just like you do with pride, the instant you detect that you are looking to your wealth, to the abundance of something you have for your own security, your own satisfaction, repent, turn to the Lord and confess that. Cry out to him. And, and here's the remedy for both pride and that kind of idolatry. N not only do you turn away from trusting riches, but you, you turn to God in that moment. And in particular, you need to know who God is and what he does. And the truth about God Paul singles out here in verse 17 is, you're not to put your hope in riches, but in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's where a biblical theology of wealth and privilege begins. With this reality, God himself richly, lavishly, abundantly provides everything. You don't have anything except for what he has given you. That's the reality that kills all of the sinful pride and idolatry in every human heart. John 3, 27, John the Baptist said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And that should function in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Rhetorical question. If you did not, uh, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When you notice pride, when you notice idolatry, turn your heart to this truth. God, you richly gave me everything I have. I mean, that's the worldview that saturated King David when he prayed after the people took this huge offering to build the temple. Listen to David's prayer, 1 Chronicles 29. He says to God, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? What is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given to you. 
all we're doing when we give back to you, we're just, it, you own it anyway. We're just giving back to you what you entrusted to us temporarily. Oh, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you, a house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. Does that truth function in your own heart? Not only does it inform then how you think about the abundance of anything God supplies to you, but it it also informs how you think about and look at others who you perceive as having more than you. Because the sin you're tempted to there is envy. There's a whole, whole philosophy in our culture today just rooted in envy. Other people who have more than me Envy is sin, and the thing that kills that is to know God can give to whoever he wants, whatever he wants, riches, honor. If he gives it, who am I to begrudge that? It all comes from him. God himself richly provides us with everything to enjoy, to enjoy. Think about what that means about God. God himself is not anti-joy. He's pro-joy, pro-delight, pro-pleasure. I love this because it undermines that Gnostic worldview, that idea that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good and the aim of spirituality is somehow to escape this world that God made and to transcend it, get up above it. That way of thinking about the material world has more in common with the idealism of Plato than it does the gospel of Jesus, of Nazareth, who took on flesh and blood and lived and died and rose from the dead in the flesh and ascended into heaven in a body, and will return in the exact same way with a body. I agree with Randy Alcorn who says that instead of the slogan, seek the giver, not the gift, we ought to say something like, seek the giver through the gift. Enjoy the giver in the gifts. I mean, how weird would it be if your parents, your spouse, somebody close to you gave you a gift and you just chuck it out and say, I don't care about that. The gifts are an expression of love and care for one another, and we show gratitude to that person by enjoying what they gave us. John Calvin said, in despising the gifts, we insult the giver. So, set your hope in God, who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. Three, do all the good you can. Paul says about the rich in verse 18, they are to do good and to be rich in good works. When you possess an abundance of means or influence, you can make things happen in the world for other people. You can make things happen. that, That is a true observation. Some people have the ability to make more things happen in the world than other people do. So if you have that, make things happen for the good of others. Stewarding plenty and privilege to benefit others is good and it's godly. It's like God. This is what God does. Acts 14, 7, God did not leave himself without witness for he did good. Same word. God himself did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So if you have means to make things happen for the good of others, do it. Paul says, be rich in good works, which just restates the, the command right before that to do good. In fact, don't just do good, be rich in good works. So he restates it and he enlarges it. With abundance of wealth means abundance of opportunity. So do good in proportion to the means that God supplies to you. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 48, everyone to whom 
much is given, of him much will be required. I think those good works broadly just describes the entire Christian life. Good works are to characterize those purchased by the blood of Jesus, according to Titus 2.14. But I think Paul probably has in mind, specifically since he's speaking to the, the, the rich in this age, he probably has in mind the kind of relief that they can give to others who have financial needs. That's consistent with Acts 9.36. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Her, her good works came out in the acts of charity, showing mercy to those in need, or what Paul says in Titus Three, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And then he gives a little more definition. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In the economy of God, this is how it works. That God does give to some people more than others. And he means for those who have more to experience the joy and the blessing of being the ones to meet the needs that they see around them. So they experience the joy of what it's like to give. And others experience the joy of what it's like to receive humbly. God set that up. He knows what he's doing. So do all the good you can with whatever it is God has given to you. For be generous. Verse 18, the rich are to be generous and ready to share. Again, same idea. Paul says it two different ways, generous and ready to share. In many ways, this just further clarifies the command to do good and be rich in good works, but it goes a little deeper. Doing good is an action. Being generous gets down to the heart. What kind of disposition do you have as you do the good? You could do good and be bitter about it the whole time, begrudging. This calls for a heart that delights in meeting needs in others. Ready to share has in mind the community. There are other people around you. God calls you to be mindful of those people and the needs that they may have. God has always commanded his people to be generous like this. Let me quote again at some length from Deuteronomy 15. Lots of instructions there about what to do with God's blessings. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. This had to do with the year of Jubilee where all debts were canceled. So the idea was if there's not much time left until that, somebody might think it's not worth it to me to go through the hassle of lending to this person in need. So take care lest you think that and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because, get this, for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Why does God bless you? For this. So that you can experience that joy of meeting the needs of others. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. This is interesting because a little earlier it actually says in the same chapter, there will be no poor among you. And then here it says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. I think that means there will always be need, but there will always be enough for the need. And so when those who have more are on the lookout for the need and they have generous hearts to share, nobody will ever go without, but there will always be opportunity to give. 
Notice how sinful selfishness is described here in terms of the whole person. Did you catch the language? Hardening your heart, shutting your hand, thinking unworthy thoughts, looking grudgingly with your eye. There's a whole person, the whole body is involved in selfishness. And the call for generosity repeated three times. Open your hand. Give freely. Open wide your hand. That's what God calls his people to do with the blessings he lavishes on you. Finally, Paul says to live today in light of eternity. Verse 19, store up treasure. The rich in this present age are to store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That, That brings together two things. Those who are rich now in the present age are to be storing up treasure for the future. There's supposed to be some long-term view, again, some eschatological thinking that characterizes our lives. The rich in the present age should live in light of the future. Same idea Jesus taught, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then Jesus gives this vivid language where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where pandemics come through and wipe out the economy, where you have no idea what could happen. It's so uncertain. Don't lay up that kind of uncertain treasure that could be taken from you in a moment, but lay up treasure, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the question in all of this. Where's your heart? What are you trusting in? What are you hoping in? And God's purpose in all of this is to give you life. This is such a a kind word from God. How, How gracious is God that he would not only give you everything to enjoy when you have sinned against him and deserve his wrath. He would do that to sinners. He does that to even people who don't believe in Jesus. People who are living in active sin, he still sends rain on them, gives blessings to them that through his patience they might come to repentance. How good is God that he not only gives you that, he gives you his word so that you know how to handle what he gives you. He gave his son for you so that you might be reconciled to him and enjoy him in the gifts that he gives. Here's the purpose for all of this. Verse 19, so that they, whoever they are, the rich in this age, whoever has abundance of anything, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul's not just talking about getting into heaven when you die. He, he realizes you're not really living. You could have all the stuff on earth, all that money can buy, and you're not really living if you don't know Jesus. And so we need this instruction so that we might really live. Getting and having wealth is not the same thing as truly living. We we did a sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's that warning there. This is a great evil under the sun. There are some people to whom God has given incredible wealth, and they don't have the ability to enjoy it. It's like having a safe full of gold, lugging that around with you everywhere you go, and you don't know the combination. There are tons of people in the world like that. Tons of wealth, they don't know how to enjoy it because they don't know God. Only in Jesus is that unlocked. Only in Jesus do we learn how to actually live, whether we have plenty 
or little. Only in Jesus are our hearts satisfied and secured forever. So that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake in learning how to live with abundance, with rich, with riches, with privilege, whatever God has given to us. And so may we be people who steward these gifts with grateful and generous hearts for the glory of Jesus in this world. And let me in particular encourage you, charge you to disciple the world. Let let the word of God inform how you think about these things so that you can teach the world what God says rather than letting the world shape how we think about is it immoral to be rich. We're supposed to go teach the world these things. So let's do that for the glory of Jesus until his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, how do we know? How do we know that you're good, that you're generous, that you have been generous to us? We know because we look at the cross and we see that you did not spare your own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. And if you did that, how will you not also, along with him, generously, lavishly, abundantly give us all that our souls need to know you and enjoy you forever? You give us everything to enjoy. So I I pray that for the people of Emmaus Road Church, that you would increase our enjoyment of you in the things you give so that in this life, in this present age, we would live in this material world you made in a way that's distinct, that communicates to the world everything we have comes from you and we are so happy about it. We're so happy in you because you're so happy in your own glory and out of your own joy you give. You are a generous, generous king, and we want the world to know you. We want the world to know you, Jesus. So make us a witness. Help us to disciple those around us until the world joins us in singing praise to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.